Chapter Nine of Yankee at Molokai by Eva K. Betts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Nine. Taps. In Brother Joseph's little office, a framed letter hung on the wall. It was from Assistant Secretary of the Navy Franklin Roosevelt, thanking him for the use of the binoculars which he had loaned during the First World War. The letter had pleased Brother Joseph when it arrived, and he had read it so often he knew it by heart. That was fortunate, because now his sight was growing dim, and reading the letter, or anything else, was becoming rather difficult. Yet in the graying world of a man with cataracts on his eyes, he tried manfully to keep up his correspondence, along with all his other work, and his address book had a list of four thousand names. The United States government installed an electric power station on the island. With it came a variety of new, efficient equipment and labor-saving devices, and with them came a new noise. Kalawao and Kalapapa were never quiet places. The wind, even when only at breeze force, stirred and moved the leaves, brushing and rustling them. The mighty cataract down the Pali, that creator of almost constant rainbows, made its presence and power known in a deep voice. Surf, ever pounding on the shore, flung pebbles and stones against the boulders, which clicked as they fell, rattled as the receding wave drew them back. Over these deeper tones were the voices of the brilliant plumaged birds that lived in the treetops or on the hillside. This constant harmony of natural sounds was, most of the time, unheard and unnoticed by the islanders. But with the coming of electricity, the fast mail, airplanes, and visitors who kept them in constant contact with the United States, a new sound was added. Radio. Some years before, Thomas Alva Edison had heard of Brother Joseph's work. The inventor, a tireless worker himself, had been moved by the story of the soldier who labored so endlessly for unfortunates. As a gesture of admiration, he sent a phonograph to the Baldwin home, and with it a fine collection of records. The orchestra music delighted Brother Joseph. The band pieces inspired his boys to try bigger and better effects with their own instruments, and if, sometimes, their ideas were much grander than their accomplishments, no one minded. They still enjoyed the records. But the phonograph was forgotten in the tremendous excitement when the first radio set was installed in the lounge of the Baldwin home. The excitement, however, did not reach as far as Brother Joseph. "'You can hear men talking in Honolulu,' reported one excited boy. What did they say? Brother Joseph asked. They talked about, about, I can't remember, brother, but it was very wonderful. It must have been, said Brother Joseph with a twinkle in his eye. It must have impressed you very deeply for you to forget it in ten minutes. The boy frowned and looked sulky for an instant. Then he grinned. But it was wonderful, Brother Joseph, he protested. He talked in Honolulu. People were always talking in Honolulu. Yes, but I didn't hear them before. Perhaps you're just as well off. It became a project of importance to get Brother Joseph to the Baldwin home at a time when the radio was operating. You hear it and you like it, he would say. Then you listen to it. I have other things awaiting my attention. At last, one evening, Brother Joseph succumbed to the pressure. He accepted the invitation to go and listen to the radio, but, as luck would have it, the air that night was unusually full of static and interference. Brother Joseph seated himself near the set. 
From his manner it was easy to see that, while he was open to conviction, he was not going to be easily swayed. This music is coming from you, squeak, squeak, dit, dit, dot, dit. Static and code from some passing ship drowned out the rest of the announcement. Brother Joseph sat impassive. The beautiful blue Danube. The voice came in as clear as if the announcer were in the room with them. Then muted strings began the lovely melody. Brother Joseph smiled. He nodded his head and tapped one foot in time with the melody. He had been a fine dancer in his younger days, and seemed quite lost in the music. Then squeak, squeak, grrr. The brother in charge of the radio jumped up and frantically twisted knobs and dials to clear out the interference. Everyone was anxious to have Brother Joseph enjoy the radio. They hoped that if he got into the habit of listening to it, he might slow down a little in the inhumane schedule of work he imposed on himself. The closing strains of the old waltz came in clear and lovely. You will now hear a medley of patriotic airs, said the announcer. Brother Joseph sat straighter, beaming. But after the opening chords, static again took over. Shrieking, wailing, growling, the radio gave up his cacophony only when the dots and dashes of code rode in. Brother Joseph sprang from his chair. You may have time to enjoy the din of that noise box, he said but I have work to do. He stalked from the room, leaving the sputtering radio and the disappointed people behind him. The days were becoming hazy to Brother Joseph. Those strange little split pea-shaped growths called cataracts were slowly forming on his eyes. Stars, instead of twinkling brightly, glowed like soft blobs in the night sky. He had days, too, when he felt tired, a most unusual condition for the soft-waist, strong-willed old soldier. It was 1928, and Joseph was eighty-five years old, but he was still the soldier, still the penitent. His old friend, Mother Mary Ann, who had come to take charge of the bishop home while Father Damien still lived, had been dead for a decade now. They had often teased each other, Brother Joseph and Mother Mary Ann, about who would die first. "'You must promise me, Mother Mary Ann, that you will not die until I am gone. I could not manage without you,' Joseph would say." But God had decided, as he always must, and Brother Joseph did manage without her. His friends of army days were going, too. It seemed as if each mail brought news of one who had disappeared from the rolls. Brother Joseph had correspondents from all over the world, people in high positions in many cases. Robert Louis Stevenson had talked with him when he visited the islands, as had Jack London. But the people who were most important to him, after his charges, were the ones he had known in the old days, in the Janesville Zouaves and in the 13th Wisconsin. He still received, each year, the gift flag from the G.A.R. It was one of those beloved banners, or at least his love for it, which started what it was to be his final illness. He was an old man of 86 now, standing not quite so straight as he used to stand, moving not quite so decisively as he used to move, but still eager and able to serve the boys of Kalawao, to atone for a few wild years, he had spent a lifetime of self-imposed penance. True, the penance had been lightened by Brother Joseph's warm love for and happiness in serving his fellow man. But the atonement and loving labor were drawing to a close. Brother Joseph had been sick, not with a dangerous illness, but one which kept him in bed. He was unhappy about it. He had accepted the fact that, with his failing sight, he must relinquish many of the tasks which for long years had been his duty and his pleasure. But having been the moving force of the island for so many years, 
it was not possible for him to slip entirely out of harness. As he lay in his bed one afternoon, he could see the flag flying outside the house. As always, love warmed his veins, and as he watched, he saw the sky darken, first to gray and then black. Tattered clouds rushed across the inky heavens. One of the sudden, fierce island storms was about to break. Forgetting the doctor's stern warning that he must stay in bed, he jumped up and ran out of the door. He wanted to get the flag in before the storm came. The halyards were tangled, and the wind, tugging at the flag, made it almost impossible for Brother Joseph's tired old fingers to disengage them. He had to brace himself so the quick gusts would not throw him away from the pole, and at last he wrapped his arms about it, still fumbling and scrambling at the halyards. Finally, just as the torrential rain began, he freed the lines, and the flag came slowly down. Trembling with exhaustion, drenched to the skin, he folded the banner carefully and started toward the house. It was an automatic move because he was tired beyond conscious thought. He took a few tottering steps and crumbled to the ground. The wind howled and the rain beat down. Then, as quickly as they had come, the storm was gone. But the old man still lay there, unaware that the sun was out, unaware of anything. One of the boys from the school who was passing saw Brother Joseph collapse on the ground and ran for the doctor. Together they managed to carry him to bed. It seemed impossible that the frail old man could fight the pneumonia which followed. But, amazingly, the devoted nursing of the brothers and his own rugged constitution pulled him through. In his delirium he had often gone back to earlier days and repeated words he had spoken, first to the abbot of Gethsemane and then to Father Damien. Penance, he would say, I must do penance. And he had more penance still to do. By the time he was fully recovered, the cataracts were fully grown, and his vision almost entirely gone. He could tell light from dark, but people and things were only wavy blurs. The world looked to him as it might if he were looking through a pool of murky water. The doctors were worried, too, about an internal condition that for some time had been sapping his strength. They had not dared suggest an operation to him, but now they conceived the idea that if they could get him to the hospital in Honolulu to have the cataracts removed, they might be able to persuade him to have the other operation. Hesitantly, his doctor broached the idea. Brother Joseph frowned, and the doctor's heart sank. Then he got an inspiration. Your correspondence is in bad shape, brother, he said. Yes, I've not been able to write for some time now. The doctor sighed. What a pity! You have been able to do so much for the boys by keeping the world informed of their needs and of what is going on here. The old lion's head came up. This was talk he could understand. If it would help the boys, he would have the operation. Now about this pain you have, brother. How did you know I had a pain? Have I no secrets? The doctor smiled. It's my business to keep an eye on you, he said, while you are in Honolulu having your eyes done. I'll not have any doctor poking around my innards. But if they can make you well and strong so that you can work with the boys again, wouldn't it be worthwhile? A gentle smile crossed Brother Joseph's face. If I could do that, if I could be of use again. A few weeks later, Brother Joseph was taken to the pier and helped aboard the ship for Honolulu. The boys' band, which he had formed and trained, serenaded him, and the chorus of older people sang the sad and lovely island music. The ship pulled away, 
and the music reached out over the water yearningly. Brother Joseph, after forty-four years, was leaving Malachi. He would not return alive. It was a different Honolulu that he reached. The gentle clop-clop of horses' hoofs was replaced by the noise and stench of automobiles. Instead of a shy, denim-clad man, eagerly on his way to exile, he was a person, good for a news story. Reporters tried to force their way over to talk to him. Flashlight cameras popped as the photographers called to him. Look this way, please, Brother Joseph. Turn this way, and smile, will you? Confused, shaken, almost panic-stricken, the weary old man was hurried over to the car which was to take him to the hospital. The driver, in his hurry to get away, started the car with a jerk. Brother Joseph gasped and clutched the side of the seat. "'You're safe. Everything's all right,' said his companion soothingly. "'We'll be at the hospital very soon.' Brother Joseph, however, could not relax. Sudden stops and starts, the blasting of horns of other cars, and shrieks of radios from open windows, all combined in the cacophonious sounds that rasped and frayed his nerves. The quiet of the hospital, when they finally reached it, was more than welcome to him. The sisters at St. Francis Hospital were very happy that they were to have the privilege of caring for him. They had been lined up at the door to greet him, the wheelchair was ready to transport him, and the room assigned to his use was the best in the place. I don't want to be a bother, he said somewhat unhappily, when he realized the preparations which had been made, involving, it seemed, everyone in the hospital. I hope not to be an added care. Bother, care, please don't talk so, Brother Joseph. We feel blessed to have you with us. Early 1931 was a strangely quiet time in the world. There were no earthquakes, great fires, or marine disasters. There were no major wars, although one was brewing. Japan would overrun Manchuria later in the year, and the monarchy would fall in Spain. In Honolulu, the whole hospital and much of the city was concentrated on the patient in the finest room, was praying for and hoping for his recovery. The cataracts on Brother Joseph's eyes had been successfully removed. Sight was there, and glasses would make it usable, but there was something else missing. Brother Joseph seemed to have used the last of his strength. What was left from the pneumonia of two years before, and going through the eye operations? Beautiful Diamond Head, the sentinel cliff which welcomes arrivals to Honolulu, could be seen from the windows of his room, white waves at its feet, and blue waters beyond. Birds sang in the trees, and hospital corridors were busy night and day with the comings and goings of the sick, and those who had been sick. Brother Joseph and his rosary waited quietly in his room. I am looking forward to meeting my old friends, Father Damien and Mother Mary Ann, he would say. Oh, they did so much. You have done a good deal, too, Brother Joseph, said the sister, sitting beside his bed. Not enough, oh, not enough, he protested. There is so much more that I should have done. Each morning, when he was strong enough, he was wheeled to the chapel for Mass. If he was not able to be taken from his room, communion was brought to him. The people of Honolulu wanted to keep his room filled with flowers, lilies, orchids, birds of paradise, all the fragrant and brilliant blossoms which grow so profusely on the islands. As soon as they arrived, Brother Joseph would ask that they be taken to the chapel. Put them on St. Joseph's altar, he would request. He has been my strength and guide for so long. Each day the generous heart slowed a little, grew more tired, 
It had done its work for 88 years. In March 1931, it stopped. The whole world knew it almost as soon as death came. Stowe, Vermont had seen his birth. Janesville, Wisconsin, his boyhood. A school there had been named after him. Memphis had witnessed his entrance into the church. But, although each of those cities felt it had a special claim on him, he was a citizen of the world, and the world knew its loss. Honolulu's cathedral was crowded at the requiem mass for Brother Joseph, crowded with people who wanted to pray for him. They were not ashamed to be seen in tears. The bustle and noise of Honolulu was hushed as the funeral cortege moved toward the ship which was to carry Brother Joseph back to his boys, the boys for whom he had done so much. The ship threw its flag at half-mast, and as it moved slowly out in the harbor, ships from many countries dipped their flags in salute, then left them at half-mast. The funeral in Honolulu had been impressive. The flag-draped casket stood in the nave of the cathedral with a guard of honor around it. Military men of rank had attended, civil officers and dignitaries, too. But the people on Malachi, awaiting the ship, were really the ones who could honor Joseph Dutton. They had known him well, and loved him. Through him, the world had come to know them. It was a different place now from the one to which he had come so long ago. There were roads on the island instead of cart tracks, automobiles instead of horses. The sick were well housed and well cared for. Only the Pondanus tree still stood, the tree under which Father Damien had slept and lived when he first arrived. A freshly opened grave was near the tree, a grave waiting for the Yankee soldier, fighting for his country and his God. Everyone from the settlement who could walk or be wheeled to the site was there. The half-masted flag, which had been hanging limp on the staff in front of Brother Joseph's empty little cottage, suddenly caught a breeze and was extended. Then the breeze died down again, just as the bugler raised the voice of his instrument in the sweet, sad notes of taps. Soldier, sleep, all is well, God is nigh. The final notes died away. The grave was closed. Brother Joseph was at Malachi, to stay in the place he loved and served so well. End of chapter 9 End of Yankee at Malachi by Eva K. Betts